If you've got little ones, they can be dismissed right now for children's worship. They're third grade and below. You don't have to dismiss them, but if you are uh, here for the first time, they're going next door to the treehouse. We have a time prepared for them that is more uh, kid-oriented. Let's start with prayer. Lord, a couple things first this morning before we have some uh, specific requests regarding our time of worship together. We want to pray for Gina Brookshire. Lord, we pray for uh, healing corporately. This people lift up our sister and this family and just pray that you will uh, just make her body healthy, that she will respond to the treatment and antibiotics and that um, Trey will just see you sitting on your throne and knowing all things and being sovereign over all things and that he will have a divine and um, otherworldly peace right now. Pray for the kids that they will just trust and know that you are God and that you are ultimately the great physician. Uh, Pray for Gina if she has an awareness of what's going on that she is just trusting and resting right now and... um, Lord, we just place her life in your hands and we just ask for uh, healing. Lord, also this morning we pray for a, another church in our community, Lone Oak Baptist Church. We pray for Robert Cook and his family, Lord. pray for Robert's marriage, that it is uh, surprised by grace and that it's, his marriage is overwhelmed with the gospel and that it's being enjoyed and lived out and savored at home and that that is gushing over onto family and friends and neighborhood and that that's spilling out in the pulpit and in shepherding and pastoring a people, Lord, and pray for this Lone Oak Baptist Church. We pray that this will be a people that are surprised by grace, captivated with Christ. Pray also, Lord, that they, you will guard them and guard us and every other Christian Christ-adoring people in this community from ever having a spirit of competition. We pray great things for other churches in this community, Lord, for your glory, not for their namesake or our namesake, but for your glory. Lord, in these next few minutes, we are so thankful that we have good news. We're so thankful in advance. We thank you for what's in store in these next few minutes. Pray that you will just lay our lives bare, that we will have a divine attentiveness. It can't be described, can't be conjured or mustered, but comes from the Holy Spirit. I pray for a clarity of speech that I don't have, that will come from the Holy Spirit, that you will speak to hearts and minds and shepherds and families and worshipers, and that you'll be enjoyed in these next few minutes. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Gina Brookshire has meningitis. If you all know Gina, we don't know right now if it's um, viral or bacterial, but it's, it's significant. She is intubated on life support right now and in ICU. And um, Trey is a surgeon, and he I visited with him last night, and he was pretty concerned. And when a surgeon's concerned, I'm just saying that it's a significant thing. So pray for Gina today and for their family, Trey, Trey and Gina and the kids. I had a tough time leaving y'all last week, leaving us the way we left. 
If you were here last week, or if you've listened to the sermon, um, we didn't end in song, we just ended and just left. And if you've made the journey this week in the Shepherd's Guide, you know that it was a difficult week. Some of the things that you saw on the screen up, up here during this first uh, song were, were passages that we studied all week. And if you were attentive and you tuned in and you engaged last week, you know that we're kind of, at the end of last Sunday, we're left pretty troubled and probably pretty tro- troubled all week long. I got emails from people, phone calls, just trying to kind of sort this out. You know, do you, is this what we're supposed to be studying? How do we leave our kids with this at night? In some ways, if you submitted to the shepherd's guide and if you really engaged last Sunday, then you've kind of been in the valley all week long. But that was in preparation for the mountaintop today. Sometimes you've got to step into the darkness before you can appreciate the light. So today we're going to go back to the passage that we considered last week and just briefly just recap darkness. Turn to Exodus chapter 33. We're going a lot of places this morning and you're going to need your Bible. Just know that we use our Bible and you're going to need it and you're going to need to be on it. I'm going to give you page numbers that are in your pew Bibles, or if you have most copies of the English Standard Version, you'll be able to use these page numbers. So don't feel funny if you have to use a pew Bible. In fact, if you don't have a Bible, you can have that blue one. Put your name in there, own that bad boy. You can put a doily on the front, you can put, wrap it in camouflage, I don't care what you do with it, use that bad boy, own it, eat it. Exodus chapter 33, page 74. I shared with you last week, this was um, at the beginning of the wilderness journey. The nation of Israel has been in in Egypt in slavery. And after 400 years of slavery, God liberated them from that slavery. And it's sort of kind of what our week has been like. (laughs) If the people of God can handle 400 years worth of slavery to enjoy God's deliverance, then we can handle a week worth of maybe valley and darkness to enjoy deliverance. Anyway, the nation of Israel is in slavery in Egypt, and God delivers them. They cross the Red Sea on dry land. They go to Mount Sinai, and they spend some time there at Sinai. They get the Ten Commandments, and then the nation of Israel can't quite bear hearing a word directly from the Lord, so they ask Moses to intervene and to, to speak with God on their behalf. So this, what we considered last week, is where God is talking with Moses. They're on the mountaintop on Mount Sinai. And Moses says to God in verse 18, he says, Please show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. He says, I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. He tells Moses how he can handle that, how he can bear seeing God's glory. He says, get in that little cleft over there, hunker down. (laughs) Because when my glory passes by, I'm going to put my hand over you just so you're not consumed by my white hot glory. And then I'll pass you by, and then you'll be able to peek out and just see the afterglow, the aftershocks of glory as I depart and pass you by. So, in fact, that's what happens down in 34, chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Now, I want to remind you what he's proclaiming. Look back in the verse we just read. He says, I'm going to pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So that's what's happening. Sure enough, he's passing before him, and he's proclaiming. Really, it's kind of an amplified version. You ever seen the amplified version of the Bible? It's just like the real wordy version, kind of like the preacher's version. You know, it makes things really complicated. It adds a bunch of adjectives. 
That's what this is. It's an amplified version of who God is. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's where usually our story ends. Most of my life, my understanding of Godness has been this first part of this description. It's where I've spent most of my life, most preaching, most teaching, has been this kind of New Testament-only sort of treatment where we see this gracious God. I'm going to call him the cocoa God because he drinks cocoa and he wears an old man t-shirt and he just says, crawl up in my lap. I'm sort of forgetful and graceful. And man, it's all good. That's the cocoa God that I've known most of my life. But then there's the rest of this God that we considered last week. This God that we got to know this week through this shepherd's guide. These passages that we considered just this morning where he goes on to say, but who will by no means clear the guilty? This gracious God, this merciful God that's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that's keeping steadfast love for thousands, that's forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity, the sin of the fathers, on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Last week we considered that and we thought, man, this rightfully jealous God, this rightfully jealous God visits the sin of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. So the shepherd's sin, we considered last week, this shepherd, this father that's overseeing a family, his sin is like jumping in a big mud puddle and the mud slapping, splattering over everybody around him. And it splatters through generations. And that mud gets all over generations to the third and fourth generation. We considered also it's kind of like nuclear waste. You know, the guys that did all these uranium testing and buried a bunch of uranium in the ground and it's nuclear waste, they're either in nursing homes, slobbering, or they're buried, and it's their grandkids and their great-grandkids that are having to clean it up. That's a great picture of the sin of the fathers, the iniquity of the fathers being visited on the children to the third and fourth generation. Last week, we just considered, you know, is that just an empty threat? <laughs> Is God just kind of throwing that stuff out there that the iniquity of the fathers is visited on the children to the third and fourth generation? But then we met some people where we saw it actually happen. We met Korah. The nation of Israel has gone into the desert. They've crossed over the, the Red Sea. They've left Sinai. There's this guy out picking up sticks on Saturday, which is their Sabbath. And they, the nation of Israel stones him. And this guy named Korah gets mad about it. He's like, yeah, that's kind of mean, you know. And we're all holy. And this just isn't right, Moses and Aaron. So he leads a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And what happens to him? When he stands up against God's chosen instrument, he gets swallowed by the earth. But not just him. His whole family is swallowed by the earth alive. The iniquity of the father is visited on the children and the whole family. And then we considered Achan. The nation of Israel has gone through the wilderness experience. They've crossed the Jordan now on dry land. 
Joshua's leading them into the promised land, and the first place that they take is Jericho. And they're giving some instructions. Don't take any of the devoted things once you go into Jericho. Don't take any of the silver or any of those things that, that should be devoted to the temple, or excuse me, at that point, the tabernacle, the tabernacle treasury, and the whole rest of the, 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 the people there, fathers, wives, children, all of those that live in Jericho are to be put to the sword. And they become the devoted things in some ways an offering. But an old boy named Achan, he saw a cloak from Shinar. It was a J. Crew cloak. He said, man, that thing is bad. That thing is cool. I'm going to take that along with some silver and some gold. And he took it and he buried, or he uh, dug a hole in his tent and buried it in the ground. And then we considered last week that the sin of that father resulted in his whole family being stoned and burned. He and his children, even his tent, even his critters are stoned and burned. So I think just from the couple examples we looked at last week, the iniquity of the fathers is visited on the children of the third and fourth generation. And then if you spend some time in the shepherd's guides this week, you met Ham. Ham was one of the sons of Noah. He walks in on Noah. They get off on dry land after the flood. There's Noah, Japheth, and Shem, three brothers. Noah sets up, builds a, a vineyard or plants a vineyard. It's the first vineyard that ever existed. And this little fruit comes out. He says, hey, man, let me make a little drink out of this. And he starts drinking it, and he ends up drunk, laying naked in his tent. And Ham walks in on him and doesn't go, oh, oh excuse me, Daddy. He walks in and goes, huh, will you looky there? Shem, Japheth, come check out Dad. He's drunk and sprawled out naked in the tent. Well, Noah wakes up and realizes what Ham has done. And what does he do? He turns to his son, Canaan, and curses Canaan. The iniquity of the father is visited on the son. Then there was the Molech worshiper. Molech was this false god that when part of the worship of Molech involved offering your children and actually burning your children, sacrificing your children to this false god, Molech. And the nation of Israel was told that if you worshipped Molech, if a man worshipped Molech and he was not dealt with, if he was not put to death, then his whole family became guilty. And the sin of the father is visited on the family. And then there was Manasseh, one of the kings of Judah. This guy was so raunchy that three generations later, his grandson is leading Judah and has... Hilkiah found the Bible, and Josiah is reading this, tearing his clothes, saying, oh man, let's obey. So he does all these great reforms for Judah, but God's anger is still so kindled for Judah that Judah still pays the price because of his granddaddy, Manasseh. So we found out last week, and we realized over the course of the week that indeed the iniquity of the fathers is visited on the children to the third and fourth generation. Now, Turn to Exodus chapter 20. <clears throat> if you're familiar with your, your Old Testament, the book of Exodus, then you know that this passage I'm about to read is from the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. Let me acquaint you with the setting. There on Mount Sinai, this is the first bookend of the wilderness experience. The second bookend is when Moses shares the book of Deuteronomy on Mount Nebo before the nation of Israel crosses the Jordan into the conquest, into the promised land. So those are the bookends. The law is given as bookends. Here's the first bookend. And here's what God says. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. 
And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now listen to what he says. For the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. That sound familiar? This is who God is. He goes on to say, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. I've got a little note down in my Bible that's an accurate little note that points out that this thousands, this showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me is speaking of thousands of generations. So I'm just going to say right from the outset, this is a pretty good investment. It's a pretty good investment when you consider that iniquity, an investment in iniquity results in that splattering over to three or four generations, but an investment in love toward God and obedience results in blessing for thousands of generations. I'm going to say Godward love is a great investment from the get-go. While the iniquity of the fathers is visited on the third and fourth generation, up to the third and fourth generation, God's steadfast love goes to the thousandth generation of those who love Him and obey Him. And those go together, just so you know that. That's a whole other sermon. Last week, we looked at a couple of examples of shepherds that proved that, in fact, the iniquity of the fathers, fathers is visited on the children of the third and fourth generation. So this week we'll look at a couple of shepherds to find out if this promise is good. If God's going to make good on this promise to bless those to the thousandth generation. The first example we're going to look at is in Genesis chapter 11. Go ahead and turn there. On Wednesday nights, we just started getting to know this old boy, Abram. We just climbed into this chapter actually we've moved through chapter 11 and we're moving to chapter 12 but we got to know this old guy that's really kind of been a discreet character for me you know I knew of him but I've never really gotten to know him and as I was studying him and preparing for Wednesday nights I realized this guy embodies the picture of this promise being fulfilled that he will bless those to the thousandth generation of those who love him and obey him let's look let's start in chapter 11 verse 27 Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Okay, there's daddy, there's Taran, there's three boys. Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcai, excuse me, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Now, the reason I wanted to take you to this is because I want First of all, before I share God's promise and God's blessing on Abraham, then Abram, I want you to know who Abram is first. I want you to know where Abram came from. 
I want you to know that Abram came from the worst of the worst, from the most despicable pagan-worshipping family you could possibly imagine. I'm sure they were worse, but his family, there's great evidence, good solid evidence, that his family worshipped the moon god Sin, capital S-I-N. Now here's the evidence. First of all, Terah's name means moon in Hebrew. That's the first clue. The second clue is that Sarai, who was actually Abram's daughter by another woman, or excuse me, not Abram's daughter, Abram's wife, Terah's daughter by another woman, her name actually is identified with the wife of this sin god, the goddess of this moon god, Sarai. And then this other woman, Milcah, is actually the name given to the daughter of this sin god, moon god, and wife, goddess, and daughter. So names mean something. And they're naming their family after gods and goddesses that have to do with moon worship. Now, that's not the only clues we've got. We also know that Ur of Chaldeans and Haran were two sin god worship centers. They were the places where people went to worship the sin god. But those aren't the only clues we've got either. There's Joshua chapter 24. You don't need to turn with me unless you really want to. I want to share kind of a discreet passage with you just to show you where he comes from. Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, moon boy. There he is. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, they served other gods. So it's not just reading the tea leaves with the clues of their names. It actually even says right here that they worshipped and served other gods, likely sin, the moon god. But then it says in verse 3, God says, Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. That's where I want to go now. Look at chapter 12 of Genesis. Chapter 12 of Genesis, verse 1. says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Remember, this guy is in a pagan worshiping family. He's also in the pagan worshiping center of the world, Ur of Chaldeans and Haran. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you, you who are rescued from a pagan worshiping family, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This dude, Abram, born into a pagan family, is rescued by a holy God. He's reckoned righteous, and he becomes the father of a new blessed people. Here's a couple other pictures. Turn to Genesis chapter 15. Same guy, same story. Genesis chapter 15. Let's just, we're trying to figure out if God's promise of steadfast love toward the thousandth generation, if he really follows through on, on that sort of thing. Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. Abram is having a vision, and in this vision, God tells him, he says, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, 
and he counted it to him as righteousness. Obedience on Abram's part and trust and belief Godward is going to splatter over the ages onto generations and generations and generations and thousands and thousands of them. In fact, numbered like the stars sort of generations. In fact, as we sit here today and we worship and we sing and we dine on this book, we're on the receiving end of his faithfulness. It's splattering over onto us. So yes, indeed, the blessings gush over onto his people over the ages. Here's another example. The other shepherd I want to consider. Turn to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. You may remember the context of Joshua last week. The book of Joshua is about the nation of Israel. After they've gone through the wilderness experience, they've crossed the Jordan. Moses died. All that first generation died in the wilderness because they grumbled and they complained and didn't go in, wouldn't go in when God told them to go in. So this new generation goes into the promised land and they begin the conquest. And this is our context and our setting. Joshua leads them across the Jordan on dry land. They have a group circumcision. Everybody recovers from that. And then the conquest begins. And that's where we pick up in chapter 2. Listen to what happens. Joshua sends in some spies to go into Jericho to check out Jericho. He says, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. So just envision these spies. A couple of them go into the promised land, and then they see Jericho. It's got big walls around it. They sneak up on Jericho. They try and look like a local. You know, I don't know what they would have looked like. But they sneak into Jericho, and they're kind of sneaking around, and they're hooking and jabbing and slipping and sliding and they're looking for shadows to hide in. And then just about before they're about to get caught, Rahab opens her door and says, get in here. So they slip in Rahab's house, Rahab the prostitute, and they hang out with Rahab. And let's see what happens. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, king, we've got some spies in the the camp. Men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab. He even knew where they were. He sent to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they've come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up onto the roof and hid them within the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. This is like a God-ordained lie. It's weird. I've been really chewing on this all week long and trying to understand this. I think it's like if your wife or your husband says, Hey, do I look fat in this? (laughs) You better not tell the truth. It's kind of one of those ordained Half-truths, maybe, I don't know. But this was a demonstration of her faith, that she trusted the Lord and feared the Lord enough to lie on their behalf. She brought them up to the roof and hid them within the stalks of the flax that she laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. She sent kind of a diversion. So everybody runs off to trying to find these guys that she said ran away. Meanwhile, they're laying on top of their house. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. 
Now before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, listen to what she says. She says, I know that the Lord has given you this land. Huh. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Listen to what she says. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt. If you're doing your math, you realize that's 40 years earlier. Jericho is still quaking over what they heard that God did for Israel 40 years earlier. Meanwhile, Israel's sitting in the the desert scared to go into the promised land, while meanwhile, everybody in the promised land is sitting there quaking over what they've heard about God. Isn't that ironic? Here's what she says. It says, we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it here in Jericho, let me tell you what happened, guys. Our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab has faith. That's a picture of faith right there. Your God, he is the God. Your God, spies, is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So then she says, now spies, please swear to me by the Lord that as I've dealt kindly with you, you also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters at and all all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So then she let them down by rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall. You can envision that. You can imagine this big wall with a window, Rahab, letting this rope out and the spies sliding down. That's exactly what happened. She lived in the city wall and she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. And the men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, listen to what, what the spies tell her. When we come into the land to whip Jericho's behind here in a little while, Rahab, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother and your brothers and all your father's household. It's sort of like a little mini Passover. You don't have to slather up the doorpost, Rahab. Just hang this scarlet, it's appropriate color, this scarlet cord on your window and you'll be passed over. But don't step outside of that house. If anyone goes out of the doors of your house, Rahab, into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who's with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head, the spies. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And what did she do? She tied the scarlet cord in the window. Good decision, Rahab. Let's see what happens. Turn over to chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 20. 
As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city of Jericho. Now, in verse 22, But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said to them, Go into the prostitute's house. It's just a little side note. I'm thinking by this time we all just call her Rahab. But they keep calling her Rahab the prostitute. And I think there's something to that. Don't you think by some point she's saying, man, quit calling me Rahab the prostitute. Just call me Rahab. Because you're going to see she's going to move in with the Israelites. But Scott and I were kind of laughing about that earlier this week. And then we realized, man, that's a walking billboard of grace. Imagine if people walked into our church on Sunday morning. You walked up and greeted yourself. Hey, I'm Ben the murderer. This is my friend John the adulterer. It would set the tone for grace. So Rahab the prostitute, anyway, it's a side note. The two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said to them, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab. And listen, who all's with Rahab? They brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives, and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho thought about Rahab being a great picture of maybe in some cases a functional shepherd. We're often referring to functional shepherds, men that are leading families, but in many cases single mothers or um, maybe spiritually single mothers where the husband is not spiritually engaged, where you feel like you're shepherding your family on your own. You should be encouraged by this prostitute because her faithfulness results in her whole family being blessed her faith splattered over onto her family and god blessed her family at least from what we see right here for the generations that were in her house she had another example that god's steadfast love goes to the thousandth generation of at least in this case a former pagan and a former prostitute shepherds are blessed to the thousandth for those that love the lord Now, this offers hope at two levels. I know it's been kind of a complicated little journey we've been on already. I'm glad you hung in there because I got good news for you. First, on the visible level, here's the hope. If you look, I realize one of the things that killed me last week was dismissing people and sending people off in a study that might just remind them of how sorry their daddy was or what a loser their granddaddy was or maybe considering just how sorry they are. And that was troubling for me, but I want you to appreciate and consider that if all you look around, all you see around you is mud and nuclear waste that you've been left, you need to know that there's hope. You've got to see this story and realize that if God can turn the generational sin of a pagan and the generational sin of a prostitute, that he can turn the tide of whatever you've been dealt. You can be the one to stand up out of the mud and lift your kids up and let them stand on your shoulders. That's the visible hope. 
in Christ, you're not stuck in the mud anymore. Turn to 1 Peter. It's on page 1014 in your pew Bible. I told you I was going to give you page numbers today, and I hadn't given any yet. 1014, I want you to see this. 1014 in your pew Bible, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. And let me escort you into this. As I'm reading this passage, I want you to think about your daddy. Some of y'all that have really been wrestling with this all week, thinking, man, all I got is mud and nuclear waste. Think about your granddaddy. Think about your great-granddaddy. Think about whatever you've been left. And listen to this, verse 17. If you call on him as father... If you're a believer, essentially what's that saying? If you call on him whose father, or him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You walk circumspectly, walk carefully in your time here on earth, knowing, listen to what he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your sorry, mud-slinging, nuclear waste-leaving father. You were ransomed from those feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. If you last week and this week and this morning, as you're sitting thinking about your past shepherding, what you've been dealt, if you're thinking that you're dealing with mud and nuclear waste, you've got to realize that in Christ you've been ransomed redeemed and rescued from those feudal ways. You have got to see the truth and the hope in that. And the reality is all the money in the world couldn't purchase your way out of generational sin, can it? You know how bad and how terrible generational sin can be. Years and decades and hundreds of years potentially heaped up of heartbreak and sin. Nothing can buy your way out of that but one thing, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ can purchase your way out of it. In fact, it does. There's nothing more damaging than generational sin, but the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to rescue and redeem. Your home can be different. Your shepherding can be different. You may deal with the consequences of some decisions that people have made, but you'll walk in hope, you'll walk in a heritage, and in a legacy that's brand new. I want to speak to excuses. Can I tell you how often I hear people say, man, my daddy didn't model this for me. I know what you're saying. I know what you want me to do. I know what you're charging us with and leading out as shepherds, but I don't have a model. What you need to hear, first of all, i got two words for you, and here they are, wah, wah. Now, while I care with what you, about what you've been dealt, the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to transport you out of that. I don't care how bad it was. I bet however bad it was, you, your daddy didn't worship the moon. I bet however bad it was that your mama was not a prostitute. She may have been. But realize that the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to rescue and redeem you out of that situation. There's no more room for excuses Because in Christ, you have the power to start a new legacy. I want to encourage you to realize, too, that it will seem insignificant and ultra-normal and non-spectacular. 
If what you're hearing right now over the past few weeks, you're thinking, man, I need to sit and do what, what he's talking about. I need to shepherd my family. The, the, you, you won't hear the angels singing, likely. Beams of light won't shoot into your den as you sit with your children and read the Bible with them. You won't levitate and feel like you're floating on a cloud as those things happen. It will seem ultra-normal and non-spectacular. I shared the story a few weeks ago about sitting with my mom and dad and my wife and my kids on Christmas morning in my parents' bedroom. I shared it at the end of a sermon, and it really wasn't part of the sermon, and this, it's, it's appropriate to share right now because this is proof. Most of my life growing up, I can remember my dad, maybe a couple times a, a month, maybe on Saturdays, usually on Saturdays, calling us into the bedroom, and we'd sit on mom and dad's bed or on the floor. My dad would open up the Bible, and he'd read a verse that he'd been studying, or he'd read something that the preacher had preached on the week prior, or he'd read something that's coming up in a Bible study that he's preparing, and he'd just read a verse, and he'd go around the room, Ben, what do you think of that verse? What does that mean to you? And I'm, I don't know, Dad. Then he'd go to Mark. Mark, what does that verse mean to you? I don't know, Dad. He'd go to Andy. Hey, Andy, what does that verse mean to you? I don't know, Dad. And then he'd say, okay, well, here's kind of what I think. And then he'd pray, and then, okay, you guys, you're dismissed. Go start on your chores, slaves. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. But that's the way it worked, and it was a couple times a month, and it was consistent. And I don't remember on any of those times thinking, boy, my dad is such a spiritual man. I don't remember on any of those specific occasions thinking, my dad is so wise and Christ is so incredible. I don't remember any specific account, but I realized that there were seeds sown that found purchase over time. And in each of those occasions, my dad probably walked away thinking, man, is this anything? Am I making a difference in these guys' lives? And here, I'm feeling like right now, if there's anything in me that truly cherishes my God, it must be because my daddy, or at least part of it, is because my daddy, my father, cherishes God. I'm standing on his shoulders, and it seemed insignificant to him, likely. But it made a difference in my life because it told me it mattered. So whatever you've been dealt, you have the opportunity in Christ to start a new legacy and a new heritage. And your kids will stand on your shoulders. Now, that's the hope on the first level, the visible level. I realized as I was preparing this sermon these last few weeks that what I had in mind initially was kind of a buck-up shepherd sermon. Come on, shepherds. Grit your teeth. Let's be good shepherds. Let's do a good job. Let's sit and read the Bible to our families. And it was kind of a, don't be sorry, don't be lazy. You have a chance to turn the tide, that sort of message, which kind of that's what it's been so far. But what I realized in studying that is that this message has morphed into something much bigger than that. I've been speaking to the visible hope initially, but let me escort you into the invisible hope. What I want you to appreciate that if we're honest, what I want you to enjoy, if you climbed in the shepherd's guide this week, and if you you were here last week and you considered Korah's sin and Achan's sin, what I want you to consider is that we've all been left a degree of nuclear waste. I mentioned last week that we're all related to another shepherd that's failed us, and his name was Adam. When Adam took of the tree of the garden and the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, when he took and ate of that tree, his rebellion led to condemnation for all men. 
You've got to appreciate that God is that holy and that sin is that corrosive. That yes, taking a a piece of fruit from a tree that God said not to eat from can result in condemnation for all humanity. God is that holy. And sin is that corrosive and damaging. And he is all of our shepherds. Up to this point, some of y'all have been thinking, man, my shepherd, he was pretty good. Like my my dad, man, I think he did, did a great job of what he had. But as I was studying this, I thought about my dad, and I thought, man, however great my dad was, my dad was related to Adam. Whatever great my dad did, he was condemned too. And I'm related to Adam too. So whatever our situation, we are in a real fix. All humanity's in a real fix. I was also hoping that as you studied these things, that you would consider That though we're related to Adam, we don't need Adam to be guilty. Because if it hadn't been Adam, it would have been me. If God made Ben and Eve, we'd be talking about Ben right now instead of Adam. If he'd have made you, men, and Eve, it would have been you. Because no one's righteous. No, not one. As I considered what happened to Achan and his whole family, where all he did was take some of the devoted things, have you ever taken something that you shouldn't? Have you ever stood up to God's ordained leadership like Korah did? I bet you stood up to your family before or your parents before. See, the reality is we're all guilty. Your dad may have been a spiritual superstar, but our lot is hopeless because no one's righteous. No, not one. And our relationship to Adam is too desperate and too dark for any solution. But there's good news in that backdrop. Here's the good news. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to show you a couple of passages real quickly. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam, our shared shepherd... My shepherd and yours, ultimately. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Here's another picture, Romans chapter 5. I referred to this passage last week, but I didn't share the whole part of it. Romans chapter 5, verse 18. You won't be able to get there before I read it. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's the taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam's sin, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. What's that one act of righteousness? It's called the cross. Through that one act of righteousness, we have hope. Now turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1. It's a passage that we've read already, but you've been thinking about it. When we read it before, you were thinking about your physical, visible daddy or your visible granddaddy. Now think about it in terms of your Adam your daddy that you may not have been really thinking about. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from Adam. Do you see that? You were ransomed from your feudal ways inherited from Adam, from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, because all the money in the world could not purchase deliverance from that guilt and that condemnation in Adam. It took something more than that, but we, was, we were purchased and ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb 
without blemish, without spot. See, the reality is we've got a whole new shepherd. That's why there's ultimately hope for all of us. If the first part of this sermon you've been thinking, man, my dad's pretty awesome. Hopefully right now you're realizing that no one's righteous. No, not one. I'm glad that you had an awesome daddy. I'm thankful for my daddy, but ultimately I'm thankful for this daddy a lot more. I'm thankful for the work of this good shepherd, this perfect sinless shepherd that went to a cross on my behalf and paid for my sin and escorted me, adopted me into a whole new family where Adam's not my daddy anymore. This is the hope of the gospel. This thing began as a buck-up shepherd sort of sermon and has turned into the gospel. I don't know if you were paying attention in these verses that we read before that we considered last week, that we considered this week, that the Lord is merciful, the Lord is gracious, that He's slow to anger, He's abounding in steadfast love, He's faithful, He's keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I don't know if you thought about how does that reconcile with the rest of that name, where it says, who will by no means clear the guilty. Because we're going, wait a second. Everybody's guilty. No one's righteous. No, not one. We're all Achans. We're all Korahs. We're all Adams. And we all have a hopeless situation. And he will by no means clear the guilty. And he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. The way that thing fits together, God is not Sybil. He doesn't have multiple personalities. That is the wholeness of God. And what glues the first part of that definition of his name to the second part is the cross. And the people of God have to to see the singularness of that cross. That's how we understand our God. That's how we get to know and reconcile the cocoa God with the jealous holy God. We've got to adore that cross. We've got to be shepherded and, and, and centered in that Christ. That is what we do, shepherds. And you shepherd best when you are enjoying that Christ. If you try and buck up and you just try and be a good old dad and try and read the Bible, but you're not enjoying this gospel and the invisible hope that we have in our Christ, it's, it's a positive thinking sort of gospel. I can think of some other people that come to mind that preach that sort of baloney. You can't do that. The shepherd has to quake. The shepherd has to, to, to sing. The shepherd has to enjoy that Christ and realize that we shepherd most effectively when we are enjoyifying, yes, that's not a word I made it up. When you're enjoyifying the gospel. Because that is glorifying God in your home. And you are escorting the good news of the finished work of a new good shepherd into your home. And that's where true shepherding comes about. We have been rescued and placed into a whole new humanity by this Christ. The unfortunate thing is the first part of this sermon, I realize it could be a lot more tangible because you can envision a sorry daddy. Even if you had a good one, you can envision what a sorry daddy is like. And the second part of this is kind of more theological. And you're like, ah, it's hard for me to really see my guilt in Adam. You need to read your Bible. The second part is bigger than the first. The invisible hope that we have in this new good shepherd is the good news. That's what creates the people of God. That's what gathers people from the four winds. That cross is that powerful to redeem us and rescue us from 
a history of condemnation in the person of Adam. And it's only the cross that can do that. We've been adopted into a new family with a new shepherd. And while we bear the scars of the old family, we do. Because we get sick and we hurt and we have suffering. While we bear the scars of the old humanity, now we walk in hope, now we walk in purpose, now we walk in meaning, and we walk in identity now in the person of Jesus Christ as a new people. We have a whole new heritage. We stand now as a people, we stand on the shoulders of the cross. While the sin of the Father splatters over onto the third and fourth generation, the finished work of our good shepherd splatters over the ages. It's where these two layers, the visible and the invisible, come together. The shepherding is at its best. It's where the shepherd is truly enjoying and savoring the invisible that the visible starts to change. Over time. You won't see it. It's like a garden. It won't happen overnight. It won't be spectacular. Just over time you'll look and say, man, that looks good. But it starts with the invisible. Shepherds, if these last few weeks you've been thinking, man, I'm telling you, I, I really want to turn my family. I really want to lead my family. I want to be the kind of shepherd that we've been talking about these last few weeks. This Dib series has really gotten me convicted. I see that everything about me has been about working 18 hours a day and feeling like my identity is and bringing home a big paycheck and having a big house or a nice car and that's all that. But you're looking at this biblically and you're going, wait a second, that's not shepherding. And you're convicted and you want to rally. You've got to realize it's got to start with the gospel. It's got to start with enjoying our Christ and marveling at the cross and being grateful for grace and mercy. It's got to start there and it's got to stay there. That's the only way you can shepherd your family rightly. We don't have, um, typically, not, we, we won't this morning either, we won't have altar calls you've been in church most of your life you're like man why don't you guys have an altar call i don't know it's not in here you know we have we've deified this trip down an aisle as some sort of thing i don't even know what it is i i did it but it's not the faith i'll tell you what the faith is the faith is people wanting to follow christ and want to begin the journey these last few weeks, some of you shepherds, you've been hearing this, and you're like, man, I don't know how to do that, but I want to do that. I think all my life I've kind of been living in this trip down an aisle, but I want to be on this journey that you're talking about. I'm begging you to connect with another man that you see on the journey. If you're a single mom or a functional shepherd, ladies, I'm begging you to connect with another woman you see on the journey and share with them what you're dealing with, what you're going through. Share with them your fear. Share with them your questions. And realize that we're on this journey together. You'll find such nourishment, such encouragement, such hope in seeing that other people are about this very same journey that you want to be on.
You can talk with any of the elders, any of the teachers that teach Bible studies. There are probably people around you maybe that you met this morning that you can talk with. If you try and keep things private, they'll never get sorted out. I'm begging you to connect with somebody with something that matters so that you can shepherd your family rightly, so that you can enjoy our Lord rightly. This morning, what we've prepared in response to the week that we've been through in our sermon last Sunday is just a time of just unabashed, wholehearted worship and song. And Scott and our worship team have prepared a time for us to just step into the throne room and just marvel at the gospel on the cross. Right now, I just encourage you, if you don't know the words of the song, just listen to them, climb into them. If you have kids over in the treehouse or in the nursery you want to go get and bring in here because you want them to enjoy, enjoy this time together in the throne room, go get them. Because we're going to spend some time together in the throne room thanking our God for the gospel. Thanking our God for our good shepherd. Let me pray and then we'll worship. Lord, I pray that you will sort out this gospel and this story and this sermon. What's in my head and my heart is not... Uh, I just, Lord, I just pray that you will just find purchase. I pray that you will arrest people with this truth. I pray that the invisible will be more encouraging. The invisible hope that we have in the finished work of Christ will be more encouraging even than the visible. I pray that you will guard men from just trying to grit their teeth, trying to rally apart from the gospel, and that you'll move us all squarely into the gospel. We are loving our families with the truth about Christ. That it's from that resource that we are amazed by grace. And that we are gently shepherding our families. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful investment in loving you. You're so gracious. You're so merciful. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Let's worship.